A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling choicey adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us yet. That point would be through chapter 27. So up until chapter 28 of Morningstar, the third installment of the Red Rising series by Pierce Brown. Hey there, this is Cross. And I'm PJ. And we are Words and Whiskey, a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike. We tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking. Think of us as your drunk weekly book club. And this week, I think I'd I'd call it a pretty good week because nobody died. Or none of the people we care about. Maybe some weird <laughs> slug snail things. But Ragnar gave us a pretty good spook. He, You could say he died, but came back to life so you know what net positive <laughs> you know it's it's always a good week on the show when we don't lose a main character right right it's always it's always a good week so today is our fourth episode covering morning star by pierce brown and we're here to discuss the second of three episodes covering part two rage i broke this part into three uh just because there's simply so much here and we'll be covering chapters 20 through 27 Yes. But first, let's talk about what we're drinking. Yes, let's. So I was perusing my little cocktail book. Found one that had all the ingredients of like I, I had all the ingredients for it. And it's called the New Yorker. It is one part scotch, a tablespoon of lime juice, a tablespoon of sugar, the shredded rind of half of a lemon and uh, or like a grated like, microplane mm-hmm. rind. And then uh lemon twist it's not that good i don't know if i just didn't have fine enough of a microplane but it's just there's just too much pulpy shit on top and all it tastes like is lemon <laughs> <laughs> you don't get the scotch at all so i don't know hmm. it's fine whatever but what i'm really excited to follow that up with is 2016 tweak from avery brewing company and uh this is one of my favorite barrel-aged beers of all time. It's a bourbon barrel-aged coffee stout. Espresso hmm. stout, really. It's, I guess this bottle, they say coffee, but usually they say espresso. Anyway, real, real heavy, heavy flavors. I think this one clocks in at like 16%. So, you know, it's a it's a heavy hitter. I'm excited for it. I, so here's a fun coffee fact for everyone, because to add to my list of things I'm a snob about, coffee is one of them. Espresso beans and coffee beans are the exact same thing. Right. It's all to do with the pressure that you put into the system when extracting the coffee. Right. I'm just saying, usually they refer to it as an espresso. Style. Oh, yeah. Yeah, totally. This says, totally. This would just says coffee. Right, right. So it, all I'm saying is that it might not necessarily connotate a change in anything. Right, but it's it's the pressure and the fineness of the grain uh, of the of the grind correct no it's it's just pressure really yeah fine fineness of the grind is actually different even depending on the type of coffee bean you're using hmm. and the type of prep you're doing for instance cold brew is typically prepped with a very coarse grain because it's going to sit in it and seep it out of it anyway so there's no reason to finely grain it mm-hmm. you get more you know, surface area out of it so it's better yeah 
So it is espresso is generally very finely ground, but there are other drinks as well that are very finely ground. Yeah. What about you? I'm having a Manhattan. I actually went searching for mint because I wanted to make a mint julep and none of the grocery stores around me had mint. I went to four, which is nuts. <laughs> Stupid I went grocery to, stores. I know. I would have gone I to spent one. Like two hours said, looking oh, for mint. No, no mint here. I guess I'm doing something else. Well, they're they're like three really close to me. There's an Aldi. At Walmart isn't really a grocery store, but they have most of the essentials. So I went there second after the Aldi, and then I went to uh, Lowe's. Is a grocery store here? Not. <laughs> not I need to clarify. There's a grocery store chain named Lowe's. Is it not that Lowe's are also yes, not that Lowe's are also grocery stores. Interesting. So I went there. They also didn't have mint. And then I went to Harris Teeter, which is across the street, and they also didn't have mint. And I just I gave up. And so I made a Manhattan because I had the stuff here to do that, (laughs) which is, you know, just a classic. It's, you know, vermouth, sweet vermouth, bourbon, a little bit of bitters, shaken. It's uh, it's good. I had an ice cube in it. The ice cube is now gone because we took so long doing notes. We did. I, <laughs> um, by the way, yeah, you would all be proud of me. I very explicitly did not drink my entire drink during note taking this week. <laughs> I saved it. Very, very true. And then I'm following that up with something that I had a couple of weeks ago: the Sycamore Sticky Crystals Hazy IPA. It's a nice. solid. What I would say though, before we move into last week's predictions, just a little plug here. If you haven't already listened to it, we did an interview podcast with High Key Obsessed. It was a great time hanging out with Thomas, getting to talk about a lot of our other favorite fantasy series. You can check that out again at High Key Obsessed Pod. Yes. And uh, if you want to just hear me rant about how much I fucking hate the first Avengers movie, that's another great place for you to do it. <laughs> yeah, true. We'll talk about that for a little while. <laughs> Oh, it was a yeah. it was a great time. I am so happy we got to got to join him on that. Yeah, we talk for you know kind of littered throughout the entire podcast, but we do talk for in great length about Red Rising as well. Probably a third of the podcast yeah. or so, maybe a fourth. Yeah, less about the specifics of the of the stories and more about the series as a whole, mm-hmm. which was the bits that we love. Yeah, and whatnot. Sort of a so. top level look at it, which was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Totally. So with that, we have a lot of ground to cover. So let's get into last week's predictions here. So now that we know Mustang is live, what comes next? You said a very delicate, fairly emotionless conversation about truces. And you were? Uh, I'm pretty wrong. I was Very wrong. Yeah. All right. Very wrong. Cheers. It's a, it's a drink from you. Cheers. Got to pick out the, uh, the pulpy bits of <laughs> lemon <laughs> rind. Nice. Be really nice if they like stuck to your teeth, you know. You had to like get them out. That'd be awesome. Oh, that'd be so good. You're right. <laughs> you know what? I'm coming around on it. This is now my favorite drink, Crossland, just because you said that. Really? No. Fuck that. <laughs> of course not. <laughs> okay. So next question: What do they do now that they have Quicksilver? You said do what they can to get information on the Jackal's operation, of which you were. I mean, I'm not wrong. I am wrong, but you are wrong in the sense where you're kind of in the realm of like maybe torture him. I mean, for the info, Severo tried to. <laughs> he tried. He tried, but you're wrong. You drink. Yeah, all right, fine. Cheers. <sighs> Next question was about Daxo and Cavax, which what you said we kind of attached it to the Quicksilver 
because they were also, you know, taken. I think it was actually just Cavax is what we kind of find out. It was obscure as to whether Daxa was taken or not. You said they they don't ultimately have problems joining Darrow. We do find that to be kind of true. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Uh, kind at the very least, kind of true. Um, I think fully true. And so I'm gonna take a drink for that. Okay. So, cheers. Cheers. Ah. Okay. Next question. What will Adrius's punishment be for losing Darrow and Victra? This is a question from a long time ago. I think the first episode of the Morning Star show, and. We kind of decided to resolve this one in this section. What you said at the time is, even though it's not his fault, dissection. The operating table was already ready and prepped, and Octavia isn't one to waste funds. So, I think... I think the... I so wanted that to be the case. I think everyone would love for the jackal to be dissected. I think that'd be a great way for him to go out just yeah chopped up into little bits but you know what i think i think we're wrong or i'm wrong yeah so we're basically what we're saying is it was clear that it wasn't going to be dissection it looked like it was going to be imprisonment it hasn't necessarily been fully paid off yet but it feels like we know that it's not going to be as extreme as your prediction is yeah so we're calling you wrong yeah i feel like he'd probably beg for dissection after a little while Maybe, maybe. Maybe he just plays the game with the oracles for like years. <laughs> that'd be that'd be bad. Yeah. Do you think he'd All right. Do you think he'd survive it? No. Dude can't like keep a straight face. He lies all the time. Yeah, that's true. He'd die like immediately. So, with that, let's get into the chapters. Chapter 20, Descent. Right away, the clock has begun to tick for our heroes at the beginning of this chapter. Darrow is sure to be discovered and reported alive to the outside world. We're already seeing it at a very low level with the sons of Ares that are present, as he is now known to be alive within, you know, kind of proximity, and the word is going to spread through the troops. Yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah. That has the wider spread implications, of course, that we are going to see later in the section where he (laughs) decides to own the message as opposed to kind of wandering out. But still... It's it's definitely something worth noting and mentioning is that his hand is kind of being forced to make the play that he makes. Yeah, and that seems to be the case a lot a lot here. Um, but I, I don't think I don't think much can be done about that. Things are moving mm-hmm. quickly, and he's getting kind of thrown into the into the fray of things. And they're giving him as much time as they can for the carving and everything like that. But society is continuing on trying to squash the rebellion they can't just like wait for darrow to be ready Mm -hmm. right right yeah that wouldn't be the right or proper thing for them to do so it makes sense Mm -hmm. and it's a good ultimately it's a good thing here that that starts to happen uh but we do kind of see with like rollo even guessing right yeah that it was that it was darrow Mm -hmm. to that extent makes sense so we go from there uh to Saro ordering devro devro Jesus Christ. Sarah what and happened? <laughs> You think I like had already drank so much, but I have like I just took our shot and I've had a sip of my beverage so far. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you didn't even switch it up in the document. No, Typically you'll trip me up with something like, like that. that. <laughs> but like that didn't even happen. This is just my brain taking a dump. Yep. So Severo ordering Darrow around. What'd you kind of make of that? I, I think it had to happen. I think especially given the circumstance that 
Severo has found himself in. He's been leading this rebellion for a year now, nine mm-hmm. months of which they had they had assumed Darrow was dead. So he has taken on right. this leadership role, and it clearly has a big burden to him. And there, there's clearly a lot that he's wrestling with there, but he he can't just give up his uh, leadership position and give way to to Darrow. That would make him look incredibly weak and probably lose a lot of the respect that he's tried to foster from a lot of the the howlers. Mm-hmm. So I, I think at least until an explicit restructuring happens, which it does later on in this section but until then he kind of has to maintain that leadership role and darrow being the one that came into this has to be subservient to it yeah yeah totally i i find it a very interesting kind of fracturing of their friendship that is found and resonates throughout the entire reading we see kind of a fracturing and a rebuilding that reminds me of some of it it has similarities to the fracturing with roke do you see any of that yeah, a little bit, but in in kind of a different way. The one with Roke, the the problems with Roke seem to have sort of arose out of neglect, neglect of the friendship. Mm-hmm. This this seems to be coming from strict absence. There there's been yeah. so much that has happened and Severo's had to do it without Darrow. So maybe mm-hmm. there's a little bit of animosity there. Darrow is seeing how things have progressed without him. And they're still moving forward, so there's probably a little bit of animosity there. So there's just kind of tension, not because of anyone's direct actions, but because of the fact that Darrow's just been gone for a year. Right, right. He's He hasn't been around to actually sort out all of the various problems or to talk anything through with Severo, mm-hmm. working through any of the, the smaller details or minutiae. But Absolutely. At the same time, when Darrow comes back in and he tries to reassert himself as sort of a lead the leader that people are looking up looking for him to be that's going to quickly kind of come across as darrow usurping power from severo Mm -hmm. and even if that's not the way several wants to think about it that's inevitably inevitably going to happen yeah definitely definitely that makes sense to me so when we look at their their kind of differences in relationship we obviously have roke who is very much being betrayed actively, not betrayed, neglected actively by Darrow. And we have neglect on Severo's side that's just from circumstance for the most part. And all of the other compounding stress of being Aries on Severo as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's a good comparison. We move on to the next little bit here. So we we get introduced to Kavax again in the cell uh, being interviewed. And he mentions... Reynard, the name of Cavax's ship. Did you know that it was named after a 14th century folktale about foxes? No, but I believe it. And uh, <laughs> I love it even more now. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so what's really interesting is that it's 14th century stuff about a fox, uh, an anthropomorphic fox going through a number of, you know, medieval ish like fairy tales. N- no, no, Reynard. Come on. Well, but Star uh, Fox but is also, an anthropomorphic fox going through stories true true but that that's in the future i mean fair fair point what's the fair future point. it's probably the past for darrow <laughs> at this point for someone eventually <laughs> super interesting though good call so no what's that's really not a good interesting call. that's a bullshit no i think it, i think it's i think it's a great call because time is an illusion <laughs> it's not <laughs> well is it though 
I like Reynard specifically for another reason. It means front or in, gosh, the connotation is so connected in France and they liked it so much that they actually replaced their word for fox that they had before with Reynard. So Reynard means fox in French. So I've been told by the Internet at large and the dictionary and everything else. Hmm. But the, the old word may be used, but originally it was just a Latin word. Interesting. Yeah. Fairly interesting. It's, it's so pretty cool. He's Cavax has a Fox ship. I mean, what else would he have? Let's be honest here. I mean, naturally, we still haven't met Sophocles this book yet, which true. We me. did get a mention of Sophocles. We did. That's true. Yeah. Briefly. How did you feel about Cavax's reveal of Virginia and Mustang's intentions? Virginia, Virginia and Mustang slash Mustang. Yep. He calls her Virginia. Obviously, Darrow thinks of her as Mustang. Mm hmm inside this section their implications and like Severo ignoring them as well um i guess i can i can see i can see the sort of reasoning behind Severo choosing to ignore them reaching out especially with how deep he's dug himself into this role of aries and being against gold society and leading a terrorist organization and these are prominent prominent people within gold society who he doesn't entirely trust because of the way things ended between mustang and darrow and ragnar in that in the mine Mm -hmm. like he doesn't see i I don't think he really knows cavex as well as darrow does but also he's a prominent leader it's the same reason why he is so incredibly slow to trust quicksilver and is only kind of able to after being absolutely forced into it so there there's i feel like a decent amount of paranoia the understanding that darrow has such intense feelings for mustang that things could get muddled and he darrow could overlook red flags and things like that in case Mm -hmm. something were to be going wrong It, it makes total sense to ignore them from that perspective it's wrong. I think he's wrong to do it, but I, I can totally see his rationale. Mm-hmm. Definitely. It is fair and fitting that Severo would do that because he has, especially we find this out more later, but he has this entire betrayal angle where he just sees all of Darrow's mistakes and is actively refusing to make them, despite the strategic implications of the choices that he's making. You know, it's it's mostly out of rage that he's making these decisions. Right. Yeah, Totally. I love this bit here that Kavak says inside of you know the cell. He's talking about how all of the other golds are educated, and he mentions that you know would I read Greek stories to my children, Mustang, when I was raising raising them? No, I told them the tales of Arthur, of the Nazarene, of Vishnu, strong heroes who wished only to protect the weak. And Mustang has more than that; she's proven Eo right. Yeah, the end of that being internal monologue, but it's a fantastic little bit that just kind of exposes why Cavax is positive for the kind of democratic ideals as opposed to someone like Lauren. Yeah. Um, I will say he seems so much more lucid here than in most other instances with him. He doesn't seem at like an unhinged fucking crazy old man as much as sort of a down to earth, really critical thinking elder of the, of the society. Yeah. I mean, at the time you're blaming it on Daxo, like drugging him. 
<laughs> well, drugging him, but also just there was the mention like of keeping him, him entertained getting, with the jelly beans. Hit in the head several times. Yeah, and never yeah. being the same afterwards. But I don't know. There's a lot that could have been done. Mm-hmm. I definitely agree. I think that it's interesting, but there are some things that come through, you know, very clear. And I feel like this is one of them. You know? Yeah, for sure. So along with Cavax, we kind of leave that. I love Rolo throughout this entire thing, right? Kind of supporting the Reaper. It's important to note that we kind of skipped over the fact that he didn't know who Darrow was last week when we talked about it, and that Darrow was obscured the whole time from most everyone except for the actual group of Howlers that was there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Rolo, he, he's the one that was, uh, he works for Julia, right? No. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Did he mention that he knew it was, he knew who Victor was as well? I think that he did make mention of it. Yeah. He, because she, he's an interesting character and I'm really excited to see what more comes from him. Yeah. I think, I think that he has a lot of kind of nuance and depth here. You know, he's mm-hmm. kind of used on the periphery to be kind of a stand in for the majority of reds and kind of the jaded nature that those higher reds have versus the lower reds that are kept underground. Yeah. So, it, yeah. it doesn't seem like there's that, that name, the distinction in name between high red and low red seems so important and makes it sound mm-hmm. so so grand and so much of a gap, but there's really fucking not. It's just their job. <laughs> yeah. It's just whether or not they're a miner. Yeah, and he's a, he's a very smart, down-to-earth dude. I mean, he seems, you know, like you said, the, the division of kind of labor of whether or not they're a miner seems to be when they're held back <laughs> from from society. Uh, he... He seems very intelligent, and that's not to say anything of the the other Reds. He's just got a different sort of jade to him. You know, he doesn't talk about, or he doesn't feel like he would talk about the veil in the same way that a mining Red would, you know? Yeah. Because like he's an entirely different perspective. Yeah. And I feel like so. a lot of that probably is derived from the fact that the low Reds have so little access and really effectively no access to anything outside of the mines themselves. Mm-hmm. So all they have to look for is um, spirituality and religion, I guess, that they bring upon themselves. Mm-hmm. Totally. And then the chapter ends with the reveal that Quicksilver is a founding member of the Sons of Ares. Mm-hmm. I think so then we get I in, think he refers to himself as the first son. He does in the next chapter. He was the first son of Ares. Yeah. Pretty fascinating. Did pretty you cool. see that coming? I did not. Not one yeah. bit. It makes total sense though. Every every little weird thing, be it Mateo, kind of his his oddities within society as well. Like we were talking about his taste in in art last week. Like it mm-hmm. didn't seem to really fit him. It, I thought that was going to be something that you were going to key into directly. You know, when you started to bring that up, I was like, oh, man, I had never like really. I mean, obviously, the book kind of puts it semi textually to make it very clear, but it doesn't prelude the fact that he is a son of Aries. No. You know? Yeah. It did, I mean, it, there's no indication there that that would have been the case. But looking back on it and saying like, oh, this is uh, an interesting, I don't know, interesting thing. Yeah, I think looking back on that conversation, that would be an interesting episode to reapproach with the kind of additional knowledge, because I do think it paints him in a very different different light, which you made me realize live time <laughs> on this read through. Yeah, yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. So 
Severo's flash of brutality here is so different at the beginning of the chapter when he punches Quicksilver in the face three times. You know, it's it's familiar to us in the sense that we've seen similar brutality throughout the series. But the reason that it's different is because we're inheriting or we're inhabiting Darrow's perspective and looking at it. And he, after the year in the box, is just so different. Yeah. Yeah, he's timid as shit. <laughs> <laughs> you think you think it's timidity from from the box? No, but I think it comes across that way. I think it's a lot mm-hmm. more just internalizing things and not quite trusting his instincts as much because there's so much that's been broken, I guess. That's definitely fair. I don't I I also think I agree with you or would extrapolate from what you're saying and say I also don't think the Darrow from Golden Sun would beat him up like Severo is in this moment. I don't think that Darrow would ever lay into Quicksilver. Yeah. Yeah. So that's true. Quick, quick aside about Quicksilver. How do Mm -hmm. you imagine him? So I love the description of the bulldog eyes because it gives kind of the perception of like rings under his eyes and kind of some some like jowls. He is a larger man, right? With a bald head. Yeah. So that's that's where once this description started happening, it completely threw off what I was thinking of. Yeah. Because like almost to a T, what I was thinking of was Adrian Veidt or Ozymandias. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Based on just his demeanor and the way he lived and his wealth and everything, like I imagined him almost exactly like Adrian Veidt from Watchmen. That's fair. And this is not, <laughs> that's not what he looks like. No, no. And he, he kind of, to some degree, like he's not the master manipulator that, that Veidt is by any means. No, I'm talking strictly, is- strictly, uh, strictly looks. Oh, yeah, right, right. I was just saying, I, I they occupied like a similar, you know, faculty or facility in yeah, the story. Exactly. And from, that's, I from think that's outside. why. I think that's why it kind of yeah. dug itself in my head that way. Yeah, I I totally agree with you. I think that it's a it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. So the words are a punch to the gut. Fitchner said the exact phrase when explaining why he didn't tell me about Titus. What if there were two bodies to the sons of Ares bodies, the low colors and the high kept them apart in case one was compromised. Darius was kind of coming to grips with the fact that it's it's logical. It's something that he would have done. Yeah. Like there, there are a couple of points in here where, where he says, like, that's what I would have done, even if it's a mm-hmm. little bit out there and hard to believe. Like ultimately, yeah. ultimately, the fe- like his intuition and technology tactical thinking of like what would i have done in this situation oh probably exactly this Mm -hmm. i think probably saved quicksilver's life to a certain extent well yeah i mean without a doubt darrow is spending almost this entire time advocating for quicksilver he's fighting for him in the sense that he's like putting together all these pieces and Severo is still ignoring them even though he's like clearly okay the through line with mateo the through line with hearing fitchner say the same thing all of these different components and Severo just still is not listening yeah that's a that's a good point and good question to uh bring up mateo that is mm-hmm. quicksilver's husband mm-hmm. that is the first non-persecuted inner color relationship that we've heard of isn't it yes but I think that part of that is that it's secret. Is it? Okay. Because it didn't It didn't seem secret. No, I would say that he's being open about it. As a means of... Yes. Okay. Yeah. That That's my interpretation at the very least. It doesn't feel like 
he has anything to gain from hiding that information here, right? So he's open about it. Though they're, I don't, they're both high colors, though, aren't they? No, pinks are low colors. Pinks are low? Even yep. even the roses? Yep. Okay. You're just a higher pink. Gotcha. Inner tier. Yeah, so he, like, Mateo is definitely pink. It's definitely not okay to have inner color marriages to any degree. Like, you know, Brandon, the gold, of course. The gold? fucking aries my god (laughs) i feel like my brain is just collapsing in on itself this week it's good it's good we're here we're talking about it brin and the gold is how you described fitch or uh severo's parents yeah (laughs) i did that didn't i hmm it's like here we are the least that's like the worst possible way to describe them (laughs) <laughs> we're gonna move on the 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 whole thing with the marriage between mateo and quicksilver i think is really another way of kind of buying into the idea that he's a son right mm-hmm. and he is a son because he wants to be openly married to you know mateo yeah i mean there's no that that just adds on to his list of reasons but he doesn't even mention that he, he no again i think that that's strictly implied. as a capitalist right which i thought was a really cool monologue no, it's an excellent monologue, and I think that we get a couple of different interesting splashes, and I want to get to the, the capitalist bit here in just a second. I've got a lot to lot yeah. to break down yeah, yeah. there mentally. I really like the little splash of color that we get about Fitchner and Quicksilver's relationship throughout this section and kind of where their grouping developed okay. as the original Sons of Ares. You know, the relationship that Quicksilver didn't really set out to make the sons of Ares, but because of the relationship with Fitchner, it kind of grew out of it. So what I found really, really interesting is Fitchner, as we discussed before, is a peerless scarred, like mm-hmm. one of the highest ranking members, members of, of the highest ranking level of society. Yep. And he is essentially working for Quicksilver. Mm-hmm. That doesn't seem like something most golds would do. Work for a color. No. Work for somebody a color below them. So... While definitely true, the interesting part about the backstory with Fitchner is we actually got a lot of it in the last book, right? So in Golden Sun, we figured out that he went out to the Rim and started working out there for a while. Mm -hmm. I believe it's the Rim uh, and was working at like a industrial plant, basically running it. And, you know, being owned by Sun Industries to some degree makes sense, right? And that there would be employees within kind of that space you know think about all of the media that quicksilver controls which has made a big point throughout here as well as golden sun yeah you know like there there are clear components where people plug and play and money becomes important however he does say that he literally can't fight because he could be eliminated by even a minor house feud very simply because he doesn't have the the firepower they kind of allow for silvers to continue because of the the sort of accumulated wealth and their ability to do so it's their place Mm -hmm. they're kind of in charge of making all the gears and cogs continue to spin right and make the gold's money yeah in addition to themselves makes sense yeah it's it's totally interesting i definitely agree with you you know it's weird that it's i wouldn't say it's weird but it's definitely at least so far as we've been presented a unique situation for a peerless guard to be in right then i believe part of that is because Fitchner was not from a renowned house, even though he's a peerless guard. 
so as you'd mentioned, he is an excellent capitalist and a self-described capitalist. Self-proclaimed, I'd say. He he definitely has those tendencies. He leans into a couple of different points and he has a great one and a half page monologue that I, I'd like to get into. Before we do that, we've got to talk about the length that he's been a son, right? I've been a son of Aries for more than 20 years. That requires patience, a long-eyed view. You've been one for less than a year. And look what's happened. You, Mr. Barca, are a bad investment. And I just love that because it complicates the entire history of the rising. <laughs> it really does. And it shits on Severo. Yeah. For, for he needs to he needs to hear it. I think Darrow says that. He could have mm-hmm. interjected and stopped stopped the conversation. If not right here explicitly, like within the same conversation. Like Severo needs to hear this shit. Mm-hmm. Like he's not acting like a sane person. No, not at all. And that's only exemplified by the way that this chapter ends. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Good point. And I, I just find it so interesting that he is an important component, but the gears of the, you know, Darrow is an important component to the entire rebellion of the Sons of Aries and everything else. But the gears have been grinding for so long that Quicksilver would be sure to continue that regardless of what happened to Darrow. Right. It Fantastic. would just be it would just be something different. It would just be a n- new pivot, new angle. Right. He also mentions before we go into the wonderful capitalist bit, do you think Quicksilver is right about the Jackal being the single greatest threat to the long-term goals of the Sons of Ares? I think he's right about that. And I think you can expand it and say that he is the single greatest threat to everybody. I think, uh, yeah, I think he is in a very strangely unique position of being born into such high power molded in such a way that he, so clearly he was a sociopath from the jump based on the fact that, (laughs) yep, (laughs) that he got his, his own brother murdered through, through essentially several, like several steps of a plan that like he knew this action would cause this, which cause would would cause this, which would cause his death. Like mm-hmm. it's not just hiring a, an assassin. Like he was manipulative and sociopathic from the jump, and that contradicts the the idea that he gained that sort of trait through the isolation caused by being sent off after the death of his brother as a means of saving Nero's heirs. So he he's born into incredible wealth and power has sociopathic tendencies which are then probably magnified i guess by his isolation in in growing up and then magnified again within the institute where he's in this situation where even though he's being helped and his his win has been bought and paid for from the jump Mm -hmm. he still finds himself in a in a tunnel like collapse and ends up fucking eating fellow students which follows him forever in the media in, yeah seemingly in in his own father's conversation with him like after graduate like fucking everything is just building up to him being this fucking evil person who is also arch governor of mars yeah he's he's an abomination of a person no that's darrow oh uh, <laughs> right <laughs> sorry my bad you're right <laughs> No, he he is he's a monster though. He's certainly a monster. Mm-hmm. And I know without we, a doubt. We we got kind of called out a little bit on our uh, our talk of the 
alignment chart. And I, I completely <laughs> agree. Even before we got the comments on it, I had been listening to the episode. I'm like, I don't think I agree with what I'm saying here. He's not, he's not <laughs> like chaotic neutral or whatever we called him. Like he is, mm-hmm. he is, what would you call it? Like chaotic evil. I mean, you'd go just, he could just be defined as straight, pure evil. Yeah. But chaotic to varying degrees. Yeah. I think, I think there's a certain amount of chaos to him. Anyway, I think, I think it would take a little bit more of explicit delving into the alignment maps to really find a, a good place for him with, with information to back it up. Yeah. But for, for all of you who like me disagreed with what I said about the alignment chart, I'm on your side. Thank you, Celine. Was it Celine? Okay. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, thank, again, thank you for the comment. And if you guys have any comments on the show, too, feel free to send them to us. I know we say that at the end of the show every single time, but definitely yeah. do. We love yeah. uh, we love chatting about it. And we'll definitely bring you up whenever something relevant comes up. Yeah. So, it's Celine in the uh, in the Discord? Discord. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So yep. that's why I didn't know who it was, because I actively avoid that, because I don't want to get spoiled. And I'm excited mm-hmm. to be able to join that Discord. So after Morningstar, so you're probably safe. Perfect. Awesome. Yeah. So page 163, which is what we've been talking about for a while, is littered with gold. I mean, just the entire deluge that we get from Quicksilver in terms of his ideology and the way that he thinks about the world is just wonderful. He mentions the golds going about and making Mirkwoods and Olympuses to hunt beasts, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's a reference. And you didn't catch that reference, which is an I obvious listened, one that you should have gotten. I listened to it, and I think I was probably just dozing off or something. So I missed that one. Obviously, I understand it, but mm, yeah. I'll I think you take a drink. Of course I take a drink. You, when we were going through the notes, you didn't get it. And I was like, what the? This is Lord of the Rings. No, this is I, your shit. I got it. I just don't. I didn't remember it being brought up yeah. in the book. Yeah. So... Uh, I've I've got a couple of things here. This is this is going to be a bit and we'll break it up as best we can. But there's a quote here that I think is wonderful to talk about. And the entire component of this hinges on the discussion that Quicksilver has about the capitalist, his capitalist nature and sort of the stalling of society. Right. Mm -hmm. I think that that's important just to frame this up in case you don't exactly recall. So. Yet we live in a society modeled after the musings of Bronze Age pedophiles, tossing around mythology bullshit wasn't that wasn't made up around a campfire by an Attican farmer depressed that his life was nasty, brutish, and short. So that quote from Quicksilver, specifically the line nasty, brutish, and short, is in reference to the Leviathan, a poem, book, work, and the whole Attican farmer thing. Uh, by Thomas Hobbes that describes economies and the social contract of man, sort of the idea behind a stricter uh, governance or governance order that's derived from the power of the Leviathan being the centralized authority of the people. So the Leviathan is cited continually by roughly half of the founding fathers as one of the several documents that help guide the constitution of the U.S., the declaration and the general ideas of the Republic. It's one of you know mm-hmm. seven that are frequently talked about along with Adam Smith and all of those other documents. OK, it fits, of course, that Quicksilver would you know cite it as to talk about it fits in directly there. I found it kind of funny, though, that he moves on from the Bronze Age to talk about like the colonial age, though, you know, like he's only it is like a thousand plus year jump, you know, almost what, 1500 years between the Bronze Age that's so frequently cited and the colonial age. Yeah, but 
1700 years ish. I guess. Yes, that makes sense. But I'd like to sort of frame that in the um, in the way that we think about dinosaurs, for example. And obviously that's a much more extreme example, but almost all dinosaurs in our mind, for the most part, are like part of the same time period, even though they're millions and millions and millions and millions of years apart from each other in Mm -hmm. some certain circumstances. So this this story taking place is 700 years after the like the conquering of Earth, Mm -hmm. which is it happens as far as we know, post-America, so probably another few hundred years from present day is when that happens. Yeah, so the, call the it general assumption. Years. The general assumption in Golden Sun was that the so we're, we got to be over three thousand right now. Right. So if we're thinking about uh, two thousand to three thousand years ago, that's a pretty pretty fair fair way to think about like yeah that's generally the same time period that that thousand year span i mean there there is like a 1700 year difference is what i was equating between the bronze age and the colonial age but the colonial age probably just gets lumped in with the american age or the post-american or the pre so there i remember it being cited once i think it was the post-american empire they mentioned yeah, so that's they they mentioned post-American empire, but the American empire is post and I think the Indian king I think was referenced at one time, meaning like India, the king of well, for some reason. I just, I don't know about that. I think that's right. All I know is the way they describe the American empire, they made it sound like it was after present day. Yes, definitely. Because the 21st century ostentationism was pre pre empire america Mm -hmm. so there's there's an entire empire that exists in america after present day and before the conquering who knows how long that lasts but yeah i there there is an entirely massive time period there right so it definitely is interesting to think about i guess my point is i wouldn't i wouldn't read too far into the jump between bronze and colonial age because from his his perspective they're all kind of untechno like unadvanced untechnology technologically advanced brutes they're literally a different species than he is right right and without touching too much on this i guess the way that he addresses the different time frames and the reason that i think that it's kind of ironic is he mentions the bronze age pedophiles and doesn't talk about the colonial slavers you know that he's referencing. Well, yeah. Which is the time frame that he's, you know, kind of talking about the, the people from. So it to me, that's in, that's an interesting that breakdown is, of the time periods. That is interesting. So it's it's small, but I agree with you in terms of the general way that he would think about lumping time together is it would be the the stretch of the American Empire. It, it should be known that Thomas Hobbes is not an American colonialist, but the sort of writings of Thomas Hobbes were popularized around that time. So uh, actually, let's let. let let us dig into that a little bit. Are there actually slaves in this society? In like from from a very explicit definition, are yes. any of these reds are slaves for sure? Are they not paid? No, I thought they were paid. They're, they're given food. They they contest for they like do contests for more food. Okay, yep, you know? right. Never mind. Yeah, yep, they're straight up slaves. Yeah, no, there's <laughs> definitely most of the lower pyramid are definitely slaves. 
and the rest is a, an imperial cast structure. Okay. Yeah. Yep. 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 You're right. I was for, for whatever reason I was thinking they were still being paid just egregiously small amounts, but no, they're being kept alive to do work. Yeah. That. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You're right. <laughs> 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 and kept in the dark about it too which is obviously the worst mm-hmm. so getting back into the leviathan this is kind of the the sort of bigger breakdown here this is gonna read very strangely but a lot of what pierce brown put into this little section here is very and a lot of what quicksilver recants is very close to the actual writings of thomas hobbs so okay the same paragraph that compares and Gonna do my best here. It's obviously difficult, and we're a little little buzzed. So, whatsoever, oh, therefore, are. is consequent to the time of war, where every man is enemy to every man, the same is consequent to the time, wherein men live without other security than what their own strength and their own invention shall furnish them withal. In such condition, there is no place for industry, because the fruit thereof is uncertain, and consequently, no culture of earth, no navigation, nor use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving, and removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, no society, and which is worst of all, continual fear, the danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. To summarize, these two paragraphs or sections, when you look at them side by side, are very similar. What Hobbes is saying here is that we stall without invention to some degree. That's a portion of this. And so not fighting against that condition means that society degrades itself over time. That's why he's saying like no additional goods, nothing changes, nothing evolves. We're not taking advantage of things around us so that we as a culture can grow if we stall in these ways, which is exactly what Quicksilver is saying. Yeah. Yeah, he is. I mean, he even says, um, nasty, brutish and short, doesn't he? Yeah. And that's, that's where this entire breakdown comes from is nasty, brutish and short, right? Yeah. So both of those sentiments end with nasty, brutish and short. Uh, it's not as though I don't believe it. it it's not plagiarism, of course, <laughs> and I'm not even getting close to suggesting that. But it is very clearly an inspiration to Quicksilver's character. Well, uh, and probably a background to Quicksilver's character. I would think somebody. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like we argued as tied into the idea of capitalism as he is. I I would be surprised if he hasn't read the Leviathan explicitly probably several multiple times Mm -hmm. without a doubt i definitely agree so quicksilver fascinating guy a lot to talk about but i think we spent a good amount of time on uh on his beliefs so we'll move on Mm -hmm. i love the quote here that darrow kind of throws back in his face uh at severo's face saying stop acting like a terrorist when he pulls out the bombs and he's, he's threatening to blow up the entire moon and everything that's here. Mm-hmm. I mean, not the entire moon, but all of the facilities on the moon, everything that makes and, the moon useful. Right, right. It would absolutely hamper the jackal in every which way and Quicksilver cripple it. And we find out that even Darrow obviously doesn't trust Severo and activated a jam field right when they got in here. I mean, going into chapter 22 between these two chapters, Severo is very damaged and we've kind of we've talked and expounded on that for various reasons but it comes to kind of manifest and roost all of his anger and rage in this next 
chapter. Chapter 22, The Weight of Ares. So, heavy dude. Heavy dude. The The fight in the hallway between these two is just a great kind of barroom brawl, yeah. right? It's just, <laughs> it's wonderful. It's, it's clearly... Um, clearly written in a way that's maybe not the most realistic kind of fight, but built such great insane tension behind the uh, the detonator. Like mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't necessarily think that if a fight were to break out, it would go like this. Hmm. You know, I could definitely see it going like this: a couple of punches I, hitting each other into the wall, and yeah, then but the, dropping to the floor. But, but the, Severo getting him in a the uh accessibility of the detonator is specifically what i'm talking about and how mm. how central to the scene it always is that's fair that is a very cinematic sort of yeah, piece exactly. of tension exactly um and i'm not which isn't to in say any that like, way not chasing after i think it's, it's yeah. beautifully done yeah this to be honest uh we have a friend one of <laughs> we have a couple of friends named tim but one of them in this moment, the way that Severo fights reminds me of the way that Tim thinks about fighting people, which okay. is to say a couple of punches, get him to the ground, put him in a triangle, call it a day. And you say that because that's exactly what happens to me when Tim and I get too drunk together and I challenge him to a fight. Right, right. And you're like, I have long arms. And he's like, well, I'm going to get inside your reach and you can't do shit. Yep. And that's exactly what happens. And then, yeah, and that's literally the way this fight. I'm goes. wrapped up like a pretzel and uh, tapping out in like a couple seconds. Mm-hmm. So the the fight ends, of course, with kind of both of them breaking down and tapping out of the the fight. And you know, it's not a fight to the death because they're they are good friends, and he's just kind of lashing out. Severo finally breaking down was so important for his character. I think. Mm. Sorry, I was like finishing Mid-sit. my beer right there. <laughs> No, it's all good. Um, yes. Yes. Incredibly important. And uh, just a cathartic release of so many, so many emotions and so many thoughts and so many things that has just happened to him that he didn't necessarily have a choice of. Do you think he really had a choice to be Aries? Severo? No. I, I think that that's specifically kind of what he grapples with here. And obviously the chapter title, The Weight of Aries. Yeah. I don't think i don't think he had a choice i think that maybe he okay let me back up i think he maybe had a choice and at the beginning he had a choice but he saw it as an opportunity not to take power but to be responsible but then didn't understand the implication of that responsibility yeah and and kind of the growth of that dimension very very quickly basically immediately. exactly and grew or changed the son of aries to a terrorist adjacent organization, but not outright terror in the same way that Harmony is. Right. But close, man. Close, yeah. And, it teeters, and at the very least, he wasn't thinking edge. about things. You know? He's yeah. not thinking. And he is, he doesn't have a whole, like, he really doesn't have much of a council. So he's approaching this himself, effectively, strategizing mm-hmm. himself. And doing what he th- genuinely thinks is necessary and what what he can versus should versus has to do and doesn't have the luxury of somebody else kind of checking his work. So he, no, not at all. He is, he is isolated and alone and it, it, way fucking out of his depth. 
And to be fair, that's also the way that Darrow was throughout the beginning of Golden Sun before he met up with Fitchner again, right? Yeah. He was out of his depth, and then he took the first command that was handed to him, which was Harmony. It's almost like Severo's growth arc is a book behind it, Darrow's. It is, but with higher stakes, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without a doubt. Like, similar positions, but the stakes are so much higher because... Severo is essentially leading the entirety of the red people mm-hmm. as opposed yeah. to kind of or trying to inspire them. Yeah. But, but leading like he, he is overseeing a city filled to the brim with red refugees. True. And making decisions and giving out rations and governing these people. And it, it is the realization of the sort of, hypothetical power that darrow carried throughout the previous books yeah he definitely was still acting and uh carrying on with with this importance but without the actual risk of fucking murdering an entire like society of people whereas Severo is kind of following in those footsteps but the stakes are so much higher very true i think the Critical difference that you're pointing at is Darrow was ultimately a tool of Ares at the time in Golden Sun. Yeah. Severo is Ares. It's the weight of Ares. That's what he's, you know, dealing and reckoning with. Mm -hmm. The stakes are far elevated. Yeah. They're nuclear compared to a gun. Exactly. So (laughs) it's going to be tough to compare the two, but in in their boiled down form, they're very, very similar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. As stated, he's only 23 here. He's dealing with all of this. And this whole section, you know, we're kind of going to just flow around the different parts of it because I think so much of it is a fluid conversation between them. I really liked the right off the bat. You tell me when I cried, I'll find a dead fish, put it in a sock, hide it in your room and let it putrefy. It's, (laughs) It's just great. He goes from that like burst of humor to a reflection of his sort of sense of loneliness at the Institute and how every time he woke up, Cold and alone, he just wanted to go back to sleep, but he couldn't because he was fighting for his own survival. And he feels like that every waking moment now, except for it's not only his own survival, it's everyone else too. And his whole breaking down, I don't know what it was this time, but I totally teared up. I got so stressed out by that. Yeah, no, it was... I can see it. It it hit me. I can see it. Yeah, Severo's such... He's such an important character. (laughs) And... Yeah, I mean, um, I I will say we we kind of glossed over it a little bit and laughed about it, but that that comment of putting a dead fish in a sock and letting it putrefy after hiding it in someone's room, Darrow's room, to be exact, uh, that that is kind of a return to the lightheartedness of Severo a little bit. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a threat of violence. It wasn't a threat of of anything actually damaging or anything unhinged it, w- it was something shocking and horrible to do s- do to somebody but it's really not gonna hurt them like it, it yeah like he, he is he's being the shithead friend that retaliates maybe a little bit too hard but in a way that's not actually harmful and that's that's something that he kind of that's that's him at the institute that's him at the academy to the little bit of the extent that we saw and him earlier on with with Severo or with uh, Darrow in general, as opposed to now where he is just weighed down with seriousness and problems and 
anger and violence and whatever else that he's facing day to day. So seeing him make that joke, even though maybe it's not a joke, but effectively it's a, it's, it's a comical threat. And that's not something we've seen from him all book yet. Absolutely. I think you are so correct. We've gotten like, we've gotten some peaceful or like questionable jokes, like right off the bat, you know, just more of like a reintroduction to Severo that weren't direct threats, but this is a return to, and we, we constantly call him this and it's not, it's not accurate, but it's common vernacular. It's a return to kind of the meme Lord as opposed to the, (laughs) it is not, that's not the right term, but it is, but it's the best way to think about it. I think it's the term that we've used. The endearing term for him for so long is the unicorn shit porn meme Lord. Yep. But yeah, it, it was great to kind of get that return to form. Him being so emotional and talking about that breakdown is a huge deal. It humanizes Severo and makes him more than just a punchline some of the time. Yeah. Or, I, you know, a brutal gut tear. I think the the biggest thing for me that hit me a little bit was uh, his comment on his time at the Institute and how mm-hmm. he would look from the bushes and see Darrow and everyone else sitting around the campfire and uh, wanting to go join them, but not feeling like he belonged or would be accepted there. And mm-hmm. that is in like entirely contrasted by our evidence of what Darrow thought of Severo in the first book, in that he was just kind of the loner and he was loved and respected by Darrow and part of the group, but allowed him like just kind of let him let him go be on his own because one, it, it it allowed for some covert operations that Darrow didn't even know about what was going on, but it was it was just kind of an outside force that was tactical in a certain respect, but also seemed to be what Severo was comfortable with. So, yeah, it, it, I don't think Darrow had any idea that Severo would have wanted to be with them. It seemed like totally. he, he was strictly choosing to be on his own out in the woods. Yeah, I, I think there's no question that that fits kind of the mentality difference between them. And I think getting this reflection back on that moment entirely refracts the part of the Institute that we saw Severo in. I think it's a great little chunk. Mm-hmm, certainly. It's honestly, I think it's my favorite part of the book so far. It, it just like I said, it just hit me this time so differently than it has any other time reading through the book. Loved it. Mm-hmm. I also really liked the follow-up, which, you know, it hadn't also resonated with me. I think the shittiest, Dara says this, I think the shittiest part of getting old is now we're smart enough to see the cracks in everything. And that's just so factual. It's not just like the general idea of the loss of innocence or that moment where you flip over into adulthood, be it from some trauma or general aging and wisdom. It's the process it's, of flipping. It's, it, is, it is potentially the process of flipping, but it's also post-flip. It's the degradation of like enjoyment of things because you start to see the cracks or the faults in things like your favorite stories or you know, stories that you loved as a kid or any other number of things that you used to love and enjoy. You yeah. just start to see all the faults in them and you're like, well, shit, why can't I enjoy this anymore? Yeah, yeah, totally. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful thought. It, it's important to note that Pierce Brown was basically our age when he started the series, when he got it published. Hmm interesting crazy i don't know wild wild young dude smart dude Mm -hmm. moving on from that i liked the very end of this chapter and kind of the commentary that we get on the veil and sort of the religious discussion because severo in addition to being a person without a home in the institute 
is also a person without a home here now he doesn't have any family left his mom died forever ago his dad just died and it was darrow's fault and darrow owns it as the fact that it's his fault here and (sighs) so he he reflects on in addition to that being a big bummer he also reflects on sort of the religious implications of the other half of his life right Mm -hmm. and he he wants to kind of know more or understand or have some sort of sense of hope instilled because while he generally believes in the dream it's not he he needs more than the dream he like really desires a family he really desires a reason to do what he's doing right he needs something and i guess that (laughs) that that kind of could lead into the howlers you know mm -hmm. and they're right they're Oath of howlers over family and all that. Well, I I think that's why he makes the oath that way, right? Yeah. Is because he doesn't have a family, so he's claiming ownership of the secondary family as his primary one and also everyone else's primary family. He's like, your families don't matter. I am family. We are family. And this is why, ultimately. Right. Exactly. It's just interesting. Sold under the guise of loyalty. Yeah, it'd it'd be really interesting to kind of dig into the thought process behind when that when that rule was made or when that guideline was made whatever you want to call it Mm -hmm. yeah did it date back to the original bits in golden sun of which to be fair i think that he was still yearning for a family back in golden sun he had his dad but he still had so much else missing from his life but he he never even called him dad he called him fitchner right he he didn't he wasn't or a fatherly figure to him Right. He was absent. Even Fitchner says that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because he was running a revolution. Ugh. Severo, man, I feel bad for Severo. Yep. Particularly, though, it's it's nice in kind of the post to say, you know, do you think there's beer in the veil? And <laughs> Darrow replies, don't be sacrilegious. Only whiskey streams streams of it as far as the eye can see. And I think that that was drink worthy and a good place oh, to certainly. take a drink for Severo and his pain. So cheers. So, uh, one second. <laughs> nice little nice little pop sound i have like a final swig here of this manhattan which has whiskey in it so so it counts noble oak which is a double oak bourbon new obviously new toasted oak and then finished in sherry oak staves so cheers cheers for Severo. for Severo. (sighs) darren Severo both admit that they don't have the answer of what comes after so far, they've really only been the machines of this war, and they kind of end on this idea or this note, not necessarily admitted directly between them, but that they need people like Quicksilver and Mustang to guide everything that could come after. They're not going to be the ones to lead what happens after, but they need to be sure that the revolution isn't just the war that they've been seeking this whole time. Right. They need to be a little bit, a little bit more than that. With that, we move into chapter 23, The Tide. I have a feeling that this is going to be... We we already had a long section. I think that this is going to be just as long. Yeah. But it is it is a wonderful chapter. One of my favorites in the book, to be honest. Just kind of the, the writing of this is just beautiful. Mm-hmm. So, chapter 23. My God, everyone right away at the beginning. This could have been its entire own chapter with the howlers everyone pulling out their suicide teeth while a great bonding moment is gruesome and then fucking ragnar man (laughs) pulls it out with his 
fucking bare hands, not waiting for the for the prop, uh, pliers. It, how big do you think his molars are? Mm. We could ask Bingham, but like if you had to we guess, should, we should ask Bingham. If I had to guess, standard ice cube. Oh my god, no way! Not an ice cube. Half an ice cube. Half an ice cube. Maybe. Yeah. I'd say like an average thumbnail. I feel like it'd be like an average thumbnail. That's like my tooth size. No, maybe. I have a small I mouth. Don't know. I have such a small mouth that I had to get my <laughs> I had to get one of my front teeth removed from the, like my bottom row of teeth in order to allow my teeth to actually like have space because they were so fucking overcrowded. And I I'm still pretty sure my giant ass thumbnail is the size of a one of my molars all right fine we're gonna have to ask bingham to sort that out still ridiculous growth growth gross big tooth uh great great bonding moment though the idea of like pulling out these teeth basically to symbolize that they're not going to give up or surrender that that's no longer an option Mm -hmm. and that they're not even going to think about it because it's not worth it um not not only that i think beyond the not being worth it just putting in in a a different place mentally daryl mentions them kind of having the weight of a death that's already been written like yeah lifted yeah it's incredibly heavy to have something like that constantly and Mm -hmm. it also makes them feel like more of a terrorist cell than a legitimate army yeah or at the very least you know like a spy organization to some degree right yeah versus an army because that that is kind of a you know a shadowy thing, terrorist or otherwise. But it's, um, it it yeah. certainly dehumanizes each of the howlers without question. It's definitely dehumanizing. Yeah. So we also get the like reassertion here. It's important just to mention we get the reassertion that Darrow is now in charge and Severo is now Howler Two. So Howler Two and Howler One are established here and that's the way the power structure will be uh so i didn't quite take it as in charge versus not in charge i took it more as well the hierarchy right tech if you want to get very very technical about it darrow is ahead of several but neither of them are an external leader of the howlers they are both howlers Mm -hmm. and they are probably going to take input from all of the howlers to make decisions Mm mm-hmm if need be, they can override it based on like rank of Haller 1, Haller 2, whatever. But it, the way it was described made it seem more like we're we're one team and we're, we're yeah. you're not I'm not leading you. You are a part of the same team that I'm a part of and we're making decisions together. Mm-hmm. That That's the way that they framed it. That's the vibe I got off of it. Fair. And, you know, to me, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I mean. I find it interesting. This book here plays a lot so far with orders and moments that aren't being captured by the writing in the moment, right? Being a first-person perspective book, we miss a lot of scenes. But then we see scenes right after something like the military briefing here. We don't see the briefing itself. It kind of helps fuel the mystery and the action that is to come, which is a great way to keep attention and keep the pages turning and feels like a screenwriter technique. Yeah, I was just going to say that it, it seems very much like a cinematic writing kind of style where you you see them go in and start planning, but don't see what the plan is. But then you approach the action scene knowing that there's a plan in place, but still getting the satisfaction of seeing the scene unfold without knowing what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I don't I guess I don't 
have enough experience to know if that's a typical tactic by authors, but it is certainly a very, uh, very good tactic used by screenwriters. What I find really interesting, and this is, I, I don't like to bring in kind of the meta perspective or thought a whole lot outside of our intro and outro episodes, but I think it's important to maybe talk about it here. People, it's this decision is more prevalent in this book than most of the other books because Pierce Brown is also becoming a screenwriter and other things like that and is starting to kind of focus on some of that inside of his life. And I think that this is not a common practice in the first person narrative, right? <laughs> Missing that time gap can mean that you miss all kinds of things. That doesn't mean I agree with it, but I don't I don't at all agree with that criticism at all. I think that it's stupid. I think that it's ridiculous. I think that it is people placing expectations of a medium on the medium when a medium can surprise you if it's pulled off correctly. And I think that he pulls it off excellently. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's I, I think it's really well done. My I guess the one thing I want to know is did this go according to plan? It seems to have. It seems you know? to have. And I guess typically they do like Darrow does a pretty good job of being surprised or having a monologue that says otherwise when something goes off of the plan. Yes, like we find in the uh the next chapter. Love love the technique though. I think that it's great and I think that it's good to talk about and emphasize it as kind of a highlight of the first person style that Pierce is exploring here. Right. We move into the call with the jackal, which I think is great. His threat to Darrow is just dripping with seriousness. It's phenomenal. Oh, certainly. Were were you was there anything that felt particularly real or fear inspiring to you? I mean, just kind of the general general vibe. How cold he was. Mm-hmm. And how um everything he said was so calculated and so intentional. There there was nothing that seemed to really catch him off guard. And maybe that's just his composure, but um he seemed to be still one step ahead ahead of everybody in that conversation. Yeah. Um, I mean, the jackal consistently feels like he's one step ahead of the bad guy. Uh, that was a shitty joke. What anyway, the fuck Crossland. <laughs> I had, I had to bring, you said one step ahead and I was like, Aladdin. That's, that's not, that's the that's joke. That's not what I was referencing. That's the next uh, joke. No, I know you weren't even referencing it. I just, my brain went to the reference for you. <laughs> uh, I, I love the descriptions of the hollows. I think that the hollows are wonderfully described. Mm-hmm. it's it's kind of a beautiful image of all these like cages stacked up and i think it gets back to what we were talking about yesterday about or not yesterday last week about the sort of layout of phobos and how they managed to fit so many people in and the idea of these small cages that contain each individual person and you know like a press grill floating around and everything else is chaotic futuristic and hurts me to think that people live this way yeah you know i mean but people do Right. A whole lot of them do. It's a, it's unfortunate. It is. Without a doubt. Certainly. We find out, though, shortly thereafter, that the revolution will be televised as Quicksilver has taken over and hijacked all of the TVs for the Sons of Ares and the HCs that are floating everywhere. I said TVs. HCs that are floating everywhere. Did they say televised? No. No, okay. but I'm saying it okay. here. The revolution okay. will be televised. I was curious about that. Which... You know, I, it's just ultimately it's what would that funny because be the, here uh, will be canned, maybe holocomized. 
I would just say would be canned because it's on the hollow can, right? Uh, is it can or cam? Hollow can. Is it C-A-N? Yeah. Hmm. Didn't realize that. I, I thought it was hollow cam. Hollow can is a large mounted device that shows the image images three dimensionally. Huh. They are cubicle with images displayed on all sides, typically found in pubs or bars. Interesting. Yep. Like me. <laughs> but yeah, so it will it will be televised, right? The revolution will be televised. The bit that I lose, I lose my shit here again. God damn it. Reliving the scene of the death of Yeo from the beginning as this preamble to what is clearly about to devolve into conflict is just beautiful. I love the return and hearing or like listening to, to some degree, Darrow grovel as his old self as the red begging for her not to be executed. That just hurts. Yeah. I was, I was expecting the speech to be, to more explicitly call out who he was in it, but I I was really happy with the way he addressed and referred to the, uh, the recording in his monologue Mm -hmm. afterwards. Yeah. Like I, 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 I was expecting something along the lines of that woman was my wife and that that young meager boy that pulled on her legs was me and i've grown and i've become more formidable and i'm angry and something like that like uh but i I think the the monologue that he put forward was probably better than that i'm happy with it without a doubt i think that as well starting his speech here with one of the first lines from the other book i would have lived in peace but my enemies brought me war is just brilliant. It's spine tingling again. There are a few first lines of novels that stick with me. There are three that that stand out to me. This one, one from The Dark Tower, and the line from The Thief of Always. But it is, man, just unforgettable. Yeah, really cool. So he goes off into almost a sermon for... For everyone just talking about the revolution and what needs to be done for them. He internally monologues about the people being a weapon that is more similar to a tide of people pushing against these gears that are going to be fighting as a mass of flesh, not as a weaponized anything. This is these are riots, really, truly. And that's sort of the the weapon of war here. The line that I also love that's kind of a call out to something else as well is never mind the night you summon, we will rage against it. And while not a direct call out, it feels like it's plucked straight out of Dylan Thomas's do not go gentle, which if you don't know, mm-hmm. the, the final lines are very commonly heard or referred to. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And the way that that whole thing is paced just sounds like that but also i mean rage being the name of the section right Mm -hmm. on top of there's a whole lot there that points to that being the direct uh inspiration for that quote i mean if we've we've talked about this before pierce brown pulls in in universe quotes for the beginning of his sections if he were to pull an out of universe quote it would be that one to put at the beginning of the section i think yeah it's the most logical it connects directly. It gets across the theme. It's right there. I think you're right. Instead, we get shit escalates, which is great. But, you know. Can't complain about separate. that, I suppose. Nah, nah. And if we fall, others will take our place because we are a tide and we are rising. Yes. And then all shit breaks loose. 
all hell. Yeah, the levees have broken. This chapter is so fucking cinematic. We kind of talked about it on the beginning half, but he is literally referencing cameras and shots and greens turning cameras on different people around the scene. I mean, even in the the next chapter, the chapter after that, I think it might be 25, we like follow a gold, right? We're like watching a gold from the jet set of the yacht that they're flying in. And that feels very cinematic in the way that everything's breaking down around her. Just so much of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the almost uh, us almost experiencing a suicide of a gold, but very suddenly. Oh, no, not in camera angle anymore. It was mm-hmm. well done, heavy and conveyed, conveyed the way to the scene, I think, in a, in a real way. It's kind of tough to describe. Yeah. And even all of the other colors that are in the cages getting out and turning and looking at the HC. And starting this kind of revolution is the greens show what's going on here and it spreads to all of the other planets and everything else. It's just it's fantastic. It, it, you can imagine the montage with the voiceover of the speech. Oh, right? for sure. Certainly. It's wonderful. And even like cutting to the image of like Ragnar and bone white armor is wonderful. You know, it's it's just so great. And it should be stated that this type of revolution is one of the inferences of the Leviathan written by Hobbes, the the sort of idea that people accumulate to a mass that is the government or the acting decision-making, and you you have to create a strict form of government that keeps people in in the line that you want them to be in. Otherwise, it's likely that the, the form will take the worst opposite shape if it's repressed for too long. Fascinating shit. Just wonderful. Anything else on this uh, this chapter? Um... No. Cool. Chapter 24, Hick Sunt Leones. I got rereading this. You know, obviously, I, I know what's going to happen. But for whatever reason, I was like, hi, I wonder if PJ is juggling the idea of is this Adrius or is this Mustang right off the bat with that title? Um, I didn't. I don't. I don't think anyone really considers Adrius to be a lion, including himself. I, I think I think he's been well established as being ousted from his family i don't think he considers himself to be part of that core part of that family that has the the lion sigil and the sort of idea of hicksunt leones never really applied to him at any point but it did for mustang so i immediately thought mustang hmm. and I, and maybe I mean, maybe i got to out. the right answer with the wrong work but you know, no, I mean, I think <laughs> that's, that that's the logic a, I followed. That's a valid thought. I guess like my only other thought is that we haven't really heard or seen. I mean, we heard a little bit from Cavax earlier about Mustang, but we didn't get the strictest picture. And we did most recently speak with the Jackal and know that potentially the Bone Riders are on the way and other things like that. So I was curious. Well, so we also already knew that Mustang was meeting with quicksilver and we knew that quicksilver is a son son of aries like there's just a whole lot to it that made me not consider anything other than that referring to mustang makes sense to me darrow's off on a very different quest though than the revolution that's happening here severo is going to fight in that rebellion he's going to manage that darrow is leaving to rally the obsidians with ragnar yes and we just get we get a phenomenal scene, kind of a lot of mentality around 
this sort of idea of this yacht and the abilities of the yacht. Um, but then Ragnar shows up and offers the stains of Priam's mom, <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, the sub governor of Phobos and wow, it, it's awesome and interesting, you know, cause she wasn't going to bow, which is ultimately why he decided to do it, you know? Right. Exactly. And I don't know. Ragnar is, I'm sure I'm not alone in this, but he's one of my favorite characters in every single scene that includes him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He is a very interesting, very intriguing character. I'm, I'm glad that we get so much of him here and that he was expanded on, you know, from his role in golden sun, which is really just, you know, a Lieutenant to some degree. Right. But necessarily. So we needed, we needed mm-hmm. a way to, uh, build trust with him and from him. And, uh, that that's going to take time no matter what mm-hmm. for sure. So something we wanted to correct when we hit kind of this <laughs> section, we noticed another statement that said Sigil barren hands. And in the original notes, I wrote, which is it? And because we were trying of, because to, of something I pointed out. Yeah, early on. it was something that PJ had pointed out before. And we kind of like juggled whether or not it was right in canon or, or maybe it was an adjustment or a mistake that was made. In the text. Yeah. So I, I had been struggling with the fact that Kieran's daughter and then the guys in the uh, in the infirmary were all kind of talking about the sigils on Darrow's hands. And I was so certain that there was a there was a comment earlier on that said that he his hands were barren of sigils that they had been removed. I found it. Found the point where it says that. And it's the fucking dream when he's in the veil. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah, does not apply to his actual physical body. That's my right. Bad. So it, that's it was a dream without colors. Right. And so that was well, kind it, of the, it, it was the sort of it was him walking through the veil. Him. Right. Him, right. It was a DMT hit. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> I think that's the best way to describe it <laughs> physically, like, uh, scientifically. But, you know, mostly I'm he. Yeah. I, I was going to say, at the very least, he thinks he's walking through the fail. I think it's a dream. It is a dream. It's a dream. Right. It, it's it's him dreaming. But in that dream, he is so convinced that it's it's real. And he's walking through the the bridge that he talks about to the veil. Yeah, totally. Um, exactly how he described it, that his, his his loved ones would be calling him from the other side over the bridge. And it's without a doubt. It's Uncle Narrow calling him. And it's just him being sleepy. <laughs> just him being sleepy. So sleepy. So, nice. so tired. So tired. I'm so tired. And then Mustang. So we go We go from correcting her mistake to Mustang being here, showing up. And man, there's a lot that they unpack in, in this scene. Uh, nah, nah, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it reads straightforward, but emotionally, <laughs> no, I mean, there's a, they, they unpack of a lot. Of course, it's a lot. But they do it very quickly, and I, I think I think that makes sense for those two. They're mm-hmm. at least Darrow isn't the most emotional person, and really neither is Mustang. They they can both show emotions, but I think the fact that they show emotions to each other is a pretty rare thing. It doesn't seem like there's many people that they they are both kind of in tune with. Yeah, definitely. I I think that this is kind of a resolution of the theme of trust from the previous book. Yeah. Wherein, you know, Darrow obviously placed a lot of trust in her with the information. 
And now Mustang needs to earn back the trust. Right. Right. She also completely buys in to the idea, predicts even Darrow's plan about going to go get the Obsidians because he doesn't have an army, um, because he can just read his fucking mind. But she says, to build, we must break. I was listening. Talking about the speech, which, you know, is phenomenal. She's she embodies EO's dream and we kind of get that understanding. She was raised that way by Cavax to begin with. Right. With all of her talk of trust, do you trust her? I do. I think I do. I think there's uh there were enough opportunities that they there are too many coincidences that Hmm. you could hand wave away saying that she was uh plotting and like waiting for a better opportunity later down the line to to spring a betrayal of some sort but there's too much of that to uh have any of it make sense like it's it seems like the most logical possibility is that she's on his side and that's even reinforced by the fact that she reached out to severo and that's known now Mm -hmm. the fact that she was meeting with quicksilver and Quicksilver is a son of Ares, even though she doesn't necessarily know that. The fact that Quicksilver would be trusting enough to set up a a meeting with her says a lot as well, knowing how careful he is. Like there's there's just so much that would go against the idea of her being untrustworthy here. Fair. I, I think that's a good point. I mean, I the only thing that I see is generally speaking People who say they are a thing are generally trying to sell you on the opposite. You know, what do you I mean, I think that they have enough. Well, it's the whole show. Don't tell concept, you know, for the most part. And I think that that also applies. Like if someone says that they're loyal because they were a boy scout, for instance. Well, okay. But she, this is, she didn't start the conversation conversations saying that she was trustworthy. This was all, kind of in response to her being questioned about being trustworthy, mm-hmm. which I think is a very different different way you approach those questions or approach those uh, accusations. But she's also very political, right? Yeah. I think she does earn the trust even within the chapters that we're here to talk about yet. But I think if we would have ended here, we might have a different different consensus, you know? Yeah, that's fair. Because I, I think she earns it when she pulls Ragnar out a little bit later. She does. But. That's true. But at the same time... Why come back here now? After everything we've um, heard from Cavex and after the sort of showdown at Quicksilver's tower, what what nefarious motivation could she have to come back now? She very specifically alone. says explicitly that alone. She, right. She is explicitly alone. What I'm saying is that she very explicitly says that she wants to keep a thumb on him, like wants to be there with him. He yes. isn't willing to send anyone else. And so I think that that is another layer of a potential reason to not trust her. I think that she does earn the trust. And I think that she also deserves the trust in the end. But I think that there's every right to at the very least question her motivations because she is such a pragmatic and advantageous thinker, albeit in a very different way than Adrius is. Yeah, that's true. She's, a fucking genius so you know yeah hard to argue with that yeah she uh, she could have her way with darrow and darrow wouldn't even know what's going on mm-hmm. <laughs> which is a sad unfortunate reality well, for darrow i mean part carving part uh proclivity to pegging i guess 
God. Okay, chapter 25. <laughs> Exodus. I like how you just completely downplayed that. <laughs> Jesus. Okay, so chapter 25, Exodus. I love that Ragnar quotes a fictional book of quotes from Lorne back to Darrow here. It's just yep. fantastic. Yep. I mean, it was essentially him reciting meditations. Yep. Effectively, yeah, that's exactly. what he was doing, right? Exactly. It's like Lorne wrote his own meditations, basically. Well, but but that's that's what it is. Stonesides, that book, is, as far as I understood, supposed to be meditations because Lorne is Marcus Aurelius in this story. No, very fair point to take it literal and very direct. I think that that is definitely the correct take. It's just funny how direct it is, you know, <laughs> it like is very it's, direct. it's not even playing coyly with it. <laughs> no, but I, I don't I don't think great. he's ever been cheeky with the Marcus Aurelius connections. It's always. Yeah, been, no, only with, only with, once with, or twice, with the exception of the name of Severo, which I asked Pierce Brown about and he never responded. So bastard. <laughs> well, not a bastard. I mean, he's a busy dude. <laughs> he's writing a new book. That will yeah, I'm sure that's why released at some point in our lifetime. Correct, correct. Hopefully, it finishes out the saga nice with a nice little. It'd be bow. pretty cool if it gets released right as we get done with. Uh... Yeah, <laughs> did you have to check? Well, okay, I, <laughs> I never remember if Iron Gold or Dark Age is like what order those two are. You know, it's it's maybe good to note here that the next two books are so fucking big compared to this one. We have like, oh, we have 10 episodes for Morningstar and we have nine for Golden Sun and we've got like six or seven for Red Rising. But like Iron Gold is going to be like 14 fucking episodes and uh, Dark Age is going to be Dark Age is going to be like 20. 20. (laughs) Like it's (laughs) it's a lot. Yeah. There's a lot to unpack, but okay. So getting back to getting back to kind of the idea here, we find out from the transmission with Victra that the revolution is working. The rebellions are popping up all over the place, all over the solar systems, mm-hmm. which it's, uh, I mean, that's clear important. Mm-hmm. Victra also reiterates the like lack of trust that she has in Mustang. I felt that was really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Clearly there's the, the argument that Victra went through so much to earn the trust, like earn her trust within this circle. But at the same time, her main argument is the exact sticking point in what she'd been fighting against the entire time while she was trying to like prove herself, which is like, she she comments on Mustang's brother and father and who they are and therefore who Mustang must be. And yes, the fact that she's not, Adrius or Nero doesn't mean that she's immediately trustworthy, but of all people, Victra should should understand that who you're familiarly tied to doesn't define who you are. Yeah. I'm I'm not saying that she should immediately trust her because because of that, but that seems like a really strange argument to focus on from Victra. While I see where you're coming from, I think that she's got at the very least, a valid point. And I think that the difference here is that Victra has fully baked and earned her trust in terms of the sacrifices that she's put in and the hell that she's been through and still being here with them. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just I, right. I see no, that. No, I, get, I, I get that. And I'm, I'm not trying to downplay what she's gone through, but 
if she's going to make an argument for why not to trust Mustang, it seems weird that that argument is who her brother and father were. I do totally get where you're where you're coming from. I see the immediate irony of that, but I also I just raise the fact that Victra has earned the trust oh, regardless no, of I, her I, stationer family. I'm no, no, no. You. I I I'm I believe you that you entirely. believe that. I'm just making the argument. Yeah, I, I think um and I think it's completely valid for Victra to not trust Mustang. And I think there are many, many, many reasons why that would be the case. I think from Victra's perspective who her father and brother are should be the like bottom of the list of why not to trust Mustang. That's sure. my point. Like, okay. why is that the thing that she focused on? Like, I, I'm not at all doubting her feelings or her thoughts or her opinions. It's, it's the motivation and the reasoning that she, I she mean, Mustang has also always said family first though. And that was, that was her entire life for so that's long. okay. That's a good point. That's something I hadn't considered and uh, completely breaks down that argument. It, that's not to say that Victra knows that, of course. That's just an, kind of an intimate thing between Darrow and right. Mustang. But I, I think that it's valid to consider, but I'm on your side. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that Victra should just trust Mustang because mm-hmm. she's not who her brother or father are. I'm just saying that's mm-hmm. that's a weird, that's an ironic thing to to focus on. Mm-hmm. Of course. So we we get kind of the picture of what we're going to accomplish when going to the peaks. Uh, the Asgard station idea just seems so cool. It's so similar to Olympus and the Institute. It, you know, another element of kind of the golden control over the obsidians. What do you think of kind of the Asgard thing? I It was so fucking cool. The idea of it's so cool. I I had a very similar visual idea of asgard as i did with olympus in that like it's some artificially floating base that allows for mm-hmm. uh very easy oversight and uh i guess uh, surveillance mm-hmm. of the of the groups below them but um man i just i just thought it was cool yeah absolutely it's uh it's super super cool very interesting we get to hopefully we get to see it soon we don't see it this week, but hopefully soon. We don't. A civilian ship creeps up on them and starts to fire. And, you know, this is kind of something that throws them off as they're starting to look out at the spires and everything else. They're being hunted by another ship that appears to be a civilian ship. Ragnar gets really aggressive, fires a rocket out of the other ship while shouting like he does. It's just such a Darrow <laughs> move. Fucking love it. I, I felt like it was more of a Severo move. Fair. Okay. Like that. that's that's an angry, aggressive spur of the moment move more than anything else i could see darrow doing it but i think he'd be a little bit more grand about the gesture hmm. and go for the uh star suit execution instead <laughs> just launch and launch through their ship yeah <laughs> yeah exactly fair enough and then they they lose engines they lose control and they collide with the ice you move into Go ahead. What? Oh, it sounded like you were going to say something. Oh, no. We move into chapter 26, The Ice. And I like kind of the idea of the crash webbing, basically just jumping out of the ceiling or the walls like an emergency yeah. yeah, yeah, seatbelt yeah. slash airbag. You and I talked about this a while, um, trying to de- trying to decide if it came out of their suits or out of the 
vehicle itself. And I think you and I both kind of landed on the idea that it came out of the vehicle almost like a, an airbag. I'm still trying to figure out how that works, but it's super fucking cool to think of that. Yeah, and I, it feels more plausible than a lot of other spaceship crashes. You we know? don't see like this it, in other space, uh, spaceship crashes. No, not at all. The closest you get is like an ejector seat, you know, and something like an X-Wing. Maybe. Um, maybe. Yeah. And and that's a big maybe. Even like in Star Trek. Everyone wearing like everyone flying X-Wings doesn't have an airtight suit on. Mm-mm. Nope. So they just have ejector seats for <laughs> no real practical reason. Right. Yeah. No, it's it's definitely an interesting thing. And I'm glad that this is kind of it's. It's kind of that exploration that we talked about, and I think Red Rising treads the line between trying to do some hard sci-fi elements, and I think it should be noted that the the sequel series is a little bit harder sci-fi, mm. but it definitely, it ha- it still has like soft sci-fi, and this feels like an element of encroaching on and trying to make it feel more real, even if it's not necessarily perfectly accurate. Right. You could imagine this working. Yeah, for sure. For sure you could. Yeah. So these these next couple chapters are going to be pretty short as far as conversations go. But Mustang Darrow and Holiday all make it out of the hole, but Ragnar is missing. Holiday refuses to let Darrow go, shooting right in front of his foot, even flashing Trigg's pistol, saying, you know, he it's shoot, not worth she it. She shoots Trigg's pistol. Yeah, right in front of his face. Right in front. Right. Like, she's very clearly making a statement about this. And it makes total sense. Like, the thing that she... like. Her justification for sacrificing her brother's life is something that Darrow is completely ignoring and uh, not making decisions based on. Like, Ragnar's not the mission, sure. But also, at the same time, kind of going backwards on that, I don't think this mission happens without Ragnar. Definitely. And obviously, Ragnar is very important to the mission, but the mission might be accomplished with Darrow by other means. Maybe that's tougher Maybe. though. That's way but I'm, tougher. I'm what I'm saying is that I, I think that holiday is looking outside of the picture of recruiting the obsidians and is more like just well, straight in survival we, mode. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Straight survival mode. Not so much as though the end goal of recruiting the obsidians is easy without Ragnar. I agree with you. I think that it's more straight survival. Like, okay, well, without Ragnar, we can't get the obsidians. So plan D, (laughs) what do we do next? Yeah. Go to the rim. Maybe. I don't know. That's fair. But before we really get resolution here, she can't stop Mustang from diving in after Ragnar. And I considered ending the chapter, the read of the week here, but I decided that would be too cruel. So I let us read the next chapter. Yeah. What do you think about Mustang diving in after him? Um, honestly, I didn't think a whole lot about her diving in after him other than um, more solidifying evidence that she's actually on Darrow's side legitimately. Yeah, yeah it's, it's the moment of trust. She's she's regaining some of that trust through this moment. Right. Affirming that. Yeah. And so we move into. But I, I don't think that's ahead. her motivation either. Mm-hmm. I, I think her motivation is probably more in trying to fulfill the mission that they set out initially to complete, which is recruit the obsidians from Ragnar's home. Mm-hmm. And I, I think she understands that Ragnar is way more important, important 
than anything else in that goal. Totally agree. I think that it is also a moment of of trust, regardless of the the sort of base. The decision to value Ragnar's life means that she cares about the rising. And so in both ways, it's a great moment of trust. So chapter 27, The Bay of Laughter. She finds Ragnar and they rescue him, pull him out of the hole. Phew! Stressful. Stressful a little bit there. We almost lost a character this week. Would have been bad. But those giant man-eating... I wrote in the script slugs, but they're described as snails. They, okay, so I wanted to talk about this early on, like in the intro. I, I I wrote my intro initially planning to talk about this. I'm pretty sure this is a typo. Or at the very least, a misrepresentation. No, I think it's a straight like up typo. Like misdescription. Because I think everything that he describes about these like creatures makes them seem like, like slugs. But... He calls them snails and there, there's nothing talking about their, their shell or like a big hump resembling a shell or anything like that. Like it, it seems almost like a leech, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, like a thick leech is essentially what a slug is. So I think it's yeah, just a at straight least, up at least by typo <laughs> calling it a, I, a snail instead of a slug. I would agree. So typo to me just means that you misspelled something. So I think uh, you just defined mistake. it wrong. Mistake. Yeah. Then. Right. Typo typo in the idea that he was thinking about the creature and slugs Mm -hmm. and snails are so similar and closed his eyes and started typing and said snail instead of slug. Yeah, it's it's a small thing, but it's, you know, it's there. But man, they're they're terrifying, though. I mean, imagining them as a slug with all of these different mouths on the back and everything else and sort of the the idea of it being a sprinting. It says snail, but I'm going to call it a slug, you know, kind of like chasing, chasing after. It's just ugh, ugh. Mm -hmm. Badness. Yeah, pretty gross. Very bad. Pretty gross. Yeah, very gross. So after that dramatic sequence, Ragnar wakes up and, you know, having his chest pounded on and everything else. And he says, not yet, all mother, not yet. In, you know, bold text like he usually does. And for the second week in a row, Ragnar has avoided death. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yes, he has. Oh, shit. <laughs> As he should, though. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I, uh, I really like Ragnar. <laughs> <laughs> yes yes yeah, uh, I, I would agree well i i think probably my favorite character at this point <laughs> it's fair so ragnar also gives us a lot of information about sort of the society in the winter and the way that things are right now and the ears of men here the cast out of the obsidian sound horrifying yeah they do the eaters of men sound like fucking terrifying just horrifying things just badness just badness so my final question is also a prediction here for you going into your predictions but okay i figure giving you time to elaborate on this one a little bit more makes sense so who do you think was in the other ship do you agree that it was cassius it's kind of left as a big question mark at the end of this section so mustang believes it's cassius and i am inclined to believe her and agree mm-hmm. with her. I don't agree with her posit that Aja could have been on the ship as well. Mm-hmm. I think this seems the fact that it's a single ship following makes me think that either there are other ships out in in orbit somewhere mm-hmm. and uh Aja's among them, or this was a sort of spur of the moment chase by Cassius. Um, that wasn't necessarily approved of, like approved by Aja or the 
uh, sovereign in general. I'm more inclined to think that way that this is this is decisions by Cassius without the others in mind. I can't help but feel the same about this entire section. Mm-hmm. That entire question, I should say, and sort of the the question that you get and the the base idea that Mustang has about why it would be Cassius chasing makes so much more sense. Fundamentally, it was meeting was in a stealth craft. All of that lines up. Right. Exactly. But then she also plants the opposite seed, which is like maybe Aja's there. She does. And uh, that felt more like a panic thought process being uh, externalized more than anything else. Gotcha. Cool. Anything else? Hmm. No. Cool. Nothing else. Well, then with, <laughs> with that, we'll move. That was, I mean, it's it's a long episode. With that, we'll move into the predictions for the week. So like you just said, I'm just going to recount your answer. Uh, who do you think was in the other ship? Do you agree that it was Cassius? You basically said likely Cassius. You don't think Aja is involved due to kind of the circumstances surrounding Correct. the event. Yep. Okay. So next question then. How will Aaliyah Snow Sparrow, Ragnar's mom, react to his return? Um, I think that's going to be very similar. Like the the scene of Ragnar interacting with his mother, based on how she's described, is going to seem very similar to the interaction of of Darrow with his mother at the end of Golden Sun. So mm-hmm. cold and calculated, but still uh, still showing love and support for their child. Okay, just the way she's been described, she doesn't sound like a super loving person. Yeah, definitely, it's fair. Okay, what about the rest of the obsidians? I almost said obsidians, but obsidians. Uh, I think a, a, a similar way. I think uh, having Ragnar there and demonstrating demonstrating the lies that they've been told, I think will uh, go a long way in disenchanting the uh, propaganda placed in the minds of the obsidians by the golds. Fair checks out reaction of sefi meaning the general you know similar question the other name on the list sefi the quiet his sister i think it's going to be something kind of similar to kieran in meeting back up with darrow it's going to be a little bit more uh, emotional a little bit more a little bit less cold than that interaction with his mother and uh I think that will instill a lot of inspiration and hope for succeeding in recruiting a lot of the obsidians. Checks out. Final question. Do they all make it to Tinos slash away from the pole after recruiting the obsidians? Provided it goes correctly. We assume you're you're predicting that we recruit the obsidians. I'm assuming we uh, we recruit the obsidians. I think, yes, they make it back. No, they don't all make it back. I think the casualties will be in the ranks of the people that they've just recruited. I think most of the main characters will. I think all of the main characters from here to where you're speaking about, like next next section, will survive. Got it. Okay. Anything else you want to say on uh, on this week or you know predictions? Hmm. No, I don't think so. I think we covered pretty much everything. I think this was good. Next week. We'll be reading chapter 28 through 34, which is through the end of part two, Rage. So finish up Rage for next week. Be, it's, done, be done with Rage. Yeah, it's it's actually one of our shortest sections. 
that we've ever done on the podcast. So it's a nice little little chunk. We'll uh, we'll talk about it ad nauseum, and uh, it'll be a good time. Perfect. Cool. So that's where we'll leave you for the week. Continue to refer to any of your friends and family. Go ahead, leave us a review on whatever platform, subscribe, etc. You know the drill. We want to be in as many ear holes as possible, and we love we'd love your assistance in uh, going down that path. Yeah. So we've got a pretty pretty swanky website put together by our great friend Tim Olson, uh, our graybeard Linux guru. Uh, put together the, <laughs> this website for us, and also independently hosts all of our web or all of our uh, episodes, which is pretty fucking sweet. But the website hosts all of the pictures and recipes for the drinks that we have on the website, as well as um, just links to social media and a whole bunch of other stuff. It looks gorgeous, and I love it. I I, mm-hmm. <laughs> I really genuinely do love that website for us. Social media at words whiskey. Oh, sorry. Website words and whiskey dot show words and whiskey dot show is that website social media. We've got words whiskey pod on both Twitter and Instagram. We're uh, pretty active on there. That's where we actually started interacting with high key obsessed podcast, which we mentioned we were just featured on this today. Today it got released today as in the day we're recording this, but it would have been the week before the Monday before this gets released is uh, when this got when that got published. But we're uh, high key obsessed podcast. The most recent episode is Crossland and I shooting the shit with Thomas. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a great time. So as PJ mentioned, follow us on social media, comment, interact. We'd love to hear from you. Any additional questions or any questions that you want me to pose to PJ? send you can send to our email or to us through instagram or twitter our email is words and whiskey show at gmail.com and continue to listen we will see you next thursday with chapter 28 through 34 thanks for listening <laughs>